Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster and a writer, and I'm your chief investigator of images. A long overdue Art Detective records Finally. today. Finally, we're together. I am with my dear friend, David Olashoga, who I have been trying to persuade to come on The Art Detective since basically day one of when I came up with the idea. But I finally got you here. And where are we? We're in an exciting place, aren't we? Manchester Art Gallery, yeah. One of the great provincial art galleries of Britain. And we are locked in. It's after dark. We have it to ourselves. We have it to ourselves. One of the blissful things about privileged access. <laughs> but we're here for a special event. Tonight, there is a preview of your incredible new BBC series, Civilizations, And it goes live on the 1st of March. It's all happening, isn't it? It's finally, after years, I mean, it's been three years in the making. I've been involved for about two and a half, and mm -hmm. now Civilizations is about to be real and released on air. My gosh, how are you feeling? It's the moment I was asked to be involved in Civilizations. It was to be asked to be involved in a bit of TV history. Absolutely, yeah. And that's humbling and intimidating <laughs> and wonderful and a whole range of conflicting, difficult emotions, but it's an incredible privilege. And just from the point of view of us being friends, I know it's been a tough ride at times, hasn't it? You've been, you've had pneumonia, you've had, you've had all sorts been, of traumatic experiences. Thirty-one countries that the series covers. The series has been to thirty-one countries. I haven't been to that many, but I've been to more than my fair share. Um, it's been really hard. Uh, I mean, it's been hard for Simon Simons and more programs, and it's amazing he's still on his feet. But it's, <laughs> I feel like I've been dealing with complicated issues while jet lagged for two years. Oh. <laughs> Well, it's worth it because I've seen all the episodes now and, my God, they're amazing. In terms of cinematography, it's mind-blowing. It's state-of-the-art. I mean, television can't really do anything better than that. I mean, it can't. It is. They're the best camera operators, the best drone operators, the best editors, the best directors in documentary working at the moment. Yeah, and the drone shots in particular are something that Kenneth Clark would have never have dreamed of, would he? Yeah. I mean, lots of things have changed since 1969, although we're making it in 1968, the original Civilization series. But technologically, television has changed enormously. Mm. Really, just in the past 10 years, the cameras have become so more sensitive. Our ability to film um, in ranges of light that would have been impossible, our ability to capture depth of field, to have extremely narrow depth of focus, mm. um, as well as the drone revolution, as mm. well as gimbals and devices that stabilize cameras that 
come out of military technology. We have this incredible revolution, which means even if you were to remake word for word Clark series, it would look radically different. Absolutely. And, and from the point of view of art, art lovers, art appreciators, the technological developments have been perfect for this medium because some of the things you explore, you can get right up to the canvas. You can see the texture of paint on, on the screen almost. And so it's sort of both macro and micro, isn't it? It sort of does, does both. But, um, you, and one you, of the remits of the oh. series was to make the art look as good as it possibly can, <laughs> is to film this material, these objects, these paintings in a way that has never been better. And they've never looked better. No, absolutely. And you have been all over... Whereabouts in the world have you been to in your... Because you do two programmes, do I you? do two programmes. I've been um, to Spain. Uh-huh. Very important. Very important. Because, um, importantly, left out of Kenneth Clark's civilization. <laughs> famously, Kenneth Clark didn't mention the art of the Iberian Peninsula in <laughs> his 13-hour series. With a, with so, a surname like Ramirez, you can imagine my feelings on that. As someone who loves Spain wants to be allowed to go there and to walk safely on the street, we felt it was extremely important to go to Spain. So I went to Spain and talked about El Greco, which was wonderful. I've been to New Zealand, to Tahiti, to Japan, to Nigeria, um, to the United States. Um, trying to work out where else. Well, as uh, you to Mexico. Me, as you tell yeah. me, you're... you're uh your kid's teacher thought that, that she was a fantasist because she could say, Daddy's, yeah. in, Daddy's in another country, Daddy's yeah. in another country. Daddy's in. Yeah, <laughs> but you were actually travelling non-stop, yeah, I, th- I think, think my daughter's teachers thought I was in prison and we were lying to her because <laughs> um, every week I was somewhere else. So it's, it's, been, it's been incredible. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's, it, it is a big challenge, isn't it? And, and I know from my point of view as an art historian, it, it's, it was an almost impossible undertaking to get it to the point where everybody will love it. Because one of the things that art history has done over the last few decades is open up the viewpoints, open up to new viewpoints, new points of view that have been previously excluded and new artworks that have been excluded from the canon. Um, this series has tried to grapple with it in specific ways, hasn't it? So for a start, there's three presenters instead of one. That was an important choice, yeah? Three presenters rather than one, a global take rather than a European take. Now, a lot of people are being... Very critical of Kenneth Clark. Now, he was asked to make a series about European civilization, and you have to say he did it <laughs> rather well. He wasn't asked to make a global series. The technology of the, of the late 60s, the cost of television, the cost of travel of the late 60s, I don't know whether it would have even been possible no. to make a series that was global in scope. Um, in that period. I'm sure people had really wanted to do it. If that had been BBC Two's ambition, they could have done it. But there was a lot less foreign travel than television in those days. So it's not surprising that they limited their scope to Europe. But we live in very different times. Travel's cheaper. The kit's a lot lighter. We can move around the world. So there's technological as well as cultural reasons why it had to be global. Mm. So three presenters, a global take, but also... I think people are missing this. And also a much, much longer story. It begins with cave art 40,000 years ago. Clark began 5th century, fall of Rome. So not only was it just Europe, it was only Europe for one and a half millennia. So this is a much longer geographic, much broader geographical sweep and a much longer chronological survey. Mm, And in that respect, it is radically different. I mean, Kenneth Clark prefaces his civilization to say this is a personal view. And I think what, what, what these are three sort of personal narratives or themes that wind, the, the different themes that each of you explore 
of course they can't cover everything, but they are they're specific and they tell stories, don't they? Yeah, yeah. What were your two stories? Well, I mean, I'm a historian. I'm not an art historian. But to me, You're art very is... very amazingly good at art history, David. Well, I'm, I, add. I, I'm, passionate, I'm passionate about art, and yeah. I have been since I was a teenager. Also, as a historian, I use art mm-hmm. to tell my stories and to explore um, the historical um, areas I'm interested in. I don't think it's impossible. I don't think it's possible to really understand periods of history, events, unless you go to the art and the literature. I wouldn't dream of writing um, about the First World War without reading poetry or looking at the paintings of John Nash and Sir John Singer Sargent. I don't think it's possible. I don't think you could understand 18th century Britain without looking at Hogarth. So art's not an added extra to me, it's part of history. And that division between art history and history, which is a real and understandable, justifiable division, I'm someone who skirts between the two. But my programmes were fundamentally about historical periods that I think are critically important. And the first is about what Europeans call the age of discovery from the 15th into the 16th century, the period when Europeans travel the world and encounter different civilizations, sometimes violently and disastrously, sometimes with not much power and not much influence and have to become traders rather than, than, than uh, invaders and conquerors. And the second programme is about the 19th century, the period when you know, the world takes off in lots of ways, and how does art react, is the question we ask, to the dominance of European empires, to the Industrial Revolution, to the urbanisation that becomes a feature of Britain, France and many other countries? What do you do as an artist in the face of a materialistic world that's moving at a faster and faster pace, that's dominated by the city and by the factory? And you've got some really interesting insights in because I'm very lucky to have seen the films, very honoured. Um, but you look at Otto Dix in particular and, and the impact of, I suppose, collisions of cultures, collisions of, of peoples, groups, and how sometimes it can be incredibly creative and productive and other times it can be very destructive and negative. And, and throughout your, your two narratives, really, you're weaving between them, aren't you? Mm. So Otto Dix would be an example of how it, you personally felt it was quite a negative, obviously a very negative outcome, war and conflict. Well, I, I think, I mean, in, in every way, I think the, the First World War is the great division between the modern age and the, and, the 19, and the 19th century age, between an age of optimism and a belief in progress and an age that we're still living in where we're extremely ambiguous about the idea of progress. One of the sh- really striking things about reading novels or political speeches from before 1914 is the presumption that progress is unstoppable and an unstoppable good. The First World War is the great fissure between those, those, two, those two phases. And the First World War, I think, because what's interesting about Dix is I think he is the German visual equivalent that talks about the war in a way that the poets do for people who speak English. Absolutely. He is their, their, their Wilfred Owen. Mm, and mm. Um, I mean, this is someone who's in the front. He's mm. in the Eastern and the Western front. He's in a machine gun unit, which is really important because the machine gun is in some ways the ultimate, the ultimate weapon. It's an industrial weapon, the fusion of the machine and the gun. The machine gun, when it was first invented, it was hyphenated because it was those two things brought together. This is somebody who's wielding the ultimate industrial weapon on his own generation, a generation born in the 19th century to believe in progress, inevitability, and to believe that the dark side of human nature, barbarism, the opposite of civilization, exists outside of Europe. Yeah. His paintings capture what it means when that delusion of the externality of barbarism is made manifest in flesh and blood. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And I think that's the interesting uh, undercurrent as well with this is that it's about industrialization progress. I mean, we're standing in Manchester Art Gallery in front of a Joseph White Dobry uh, painting. And here we're talking about the, we're in an area where the white heater technology was really picking up steam in the sort of 19th century going through. Uh, we're surrounded by the, the things that were bought with that money that was part of industrialization. So, so art and, and progress and industry all go together. Um, and then, of course, we have climax in the war. But you've got a, f- a few people you explore in your films that sort of touch upon this, this impact yeah. of industrialization. And White of Derby is one of them. Somebody yeah. brought up in one of those crucibles of the Industrial Revolution who's fascinated by industry, by the machine, by the factory, by the way it's changing the landscape. But he's also fascinated by the science behind it. Absolutely. He is amazed and astonished and intrigued by the drama of science. I mean, his two, I think, most famous paintings, the experiment with the bird in the air pump and the orrery, are about science as theatre. And like all good theatre, it has dramatic lighting. Absolutely. Single source lighting, <laughs> candles obscured behind glass jars, and uh, moments of suspense uh. and of fear. And it is, it's, it is gothic. I mean, I look at those paintings and I think of Mary Shelley. Absolutely. They are that, that, the gothic imagination emerging out of the fear of what progress and industrialization might mean. And it's this wonderful... It yeah, and it's this wonderful conflict, isn't it? People assume that the Gothic, the romantic, the sort of the, the impassioned side of visual arts uh, always sit in counter to the enlightened, the scientific, the, the reasoned. And yet in Wright Derby, they're just crashing up against each other, aren't they, in these incredibly dramatic pieces, which, if you break them down, are full of scientific intricacies. Um, but, but again, just this idea that, um, that he is part of the, the cogs of, and the machines of this area. Well, not Manchester, but, you know, of, of well, the, the north. Well, the, the north of England. I mean, yeah. this, this city was... This city was at the same time, one of the most exciting, d- dramatic, dynamic places on earth, and at the same time, a social disaster. Right. This, you know, when this was painted in the middle of the year, 1850s, when William Wilde did his, his view of, land, of Manchester from Kersal Moor, 400,000 people lived in here, lived in this city. It had been a village, well, yeah. a market town a generation earlier. The, the, 
the shock, I mean, it was a shock city. Nothing like Manchester had ever existed before. Artists trying to make sense of a place like Manchester, of the factory, of the mill, of the place dominated by the clock, not by the seasons anymore, or by the passage of, of, of night and day. This is a radical new way of living. And people are trying to deal with that right through the 19th century. The Impressionists are trying to deal with it. They're living in a Paris that's been transformed in their lifetime by an emperor and uh, an and, uh, and houseman. Um, a city they knew wiped off the map and a new one built, yeah. one built around light, ideas about light, and artificial electric, lighting. Like artificial yeah. lighting, yeah. exactly. And, and so, that is, it's, it's unbelievable because suddenly your relationship with the natural world is transformed, yeah. isn't it, when you can put a light bulb in and create light at any time. I think this is why the 19th century is so fascinating because the things that we take for granted, you look at your phone and you know about the time because you live your life through chronology. When it gets dark, you turn off a light, that you live in a city where you can walk around and meet people. You don't live in a village. You don't think much about the seasons, never mind seasonality of food or what's available. All of these things we take for granted four generations ago were new and they were frightening and dramatic. As an artist, how do you make sense of something like Manchester? Well, they, they struggled. Yeah. And so, so you explore issues like that about the, sort of the, the big schisms, the big changes. But you do some really interesting work in the series on cultural uh, when, when cultures come together and create yeah. something new and rich, I was particularly interested in things you did on Maori portraits. So tell me a bit more about those. Well, the first of the two programmes that I present um, is about that what, what Europeans call the Age of Discovery. Now, the Age of Discovery is often understood through the prism of what happened in Mexico and Peru with the destruction of the Aztec and the Inca civilizations, which are cataclysmic, world-changing events. There are also exceptions. Most of the period, the 15th, 16th century, Europeans and into the 17th century, Europeans are going around the world encountering civilizations as advanced as they are, wealthier than they are, uh, that they can't dominate. And they have to trade and they have to interact and they have to adapt. And what you have is you have artists capturing those moments of fusion, those moments of interaction. Now, in the 19th century, that changes because technological reasons and also a sense of confidence that comes out of the Enlightenment convinces Europeans that they don't need to learn from other people's um, cultures. And what artists often do in those moments in the 19th century is they record the demise of certain peoples. George Catlin on the North American frontier is knowingly and in his diary, he talks about this, recording a people he does not think will be around in 100 years' time. He says that they are doomed, but they might live again on canvas. And his paintings are part of salvage ethnography. Mm. What happens in New Zealand is something really, really different. It's Gottfried Lindauer, who is a Czech from what's then the Austro-Hungarian Empire, who just doesn't want to join the army. He's going yeah. to get conscripted. <laughs> He needs to get away from Austria-Hungary to avoid ending up in the army, and he slightly overdoes it. He goes all the way to New Zealand, which is... <laughs> bit of a long, bit of an he, <laughs> overshoot, He's yeah. really not keen, clearly, on joining the Austro-Hungarian <laughs> Empire. Ends up in New Zealand. Now, there he finds the Maori at a moment when they are reasserting themselves after a long period of decline and war with the British settlers. And they don't see themselves as a people who are doomed to extinction. No. They don't see themselves as being this cookie-cutter image of the, post, of the social, Darwinist, uh, social Darwinian image of a dying race. They are back, they are popular, populations increasing, and they are learning how to navigate within their society and the society that has imposed itself upon them, the foreigners, the, what the paheka, as they call them. Mm. 
Now, Gottfried Lindauer arrives, and at first he paints portraits paid for by Europeans of Maori, somewhat objectifying them, viewing them somewhat through the colonial gaze. But then many of his his patrons, who are paying for the photograph, become wealthy Maori businessmen and chiefs. Now, they choose, they're paying. They choose how they want to be painted. Mm-hmm. And they're not being painted as exotic objects or, or as, as people who are, who are there to be recorded for posterity. They are saying, I am here, I am now, I am wealthy, and I can navigate between these two societies. And so you have this moment where a European-trained portrait artist, is, his skills are co-opted by a people on the colonial frontier used for their aims, their ambitions, and he paints them the way they want to be seen. Yeah, I mean, some of the portraits are are fabulous because they're sort of a mashup of different cultural uh, influences, aren't they? Yeah, because these Maori chieftains who appear in Lindauer's paintings, they want to show that they can navigate between these two societies. So they will have the traditional amulet Mm. from Maori culture, and then they'll have a pocket watch. Absolutely. To show that they are... (laughs) They get it. Yes. They can move. They are, they are they are bicultural beings, yeah. and they are part of the new New Zealand that's emerging. The society which is mixed, which is um, one of exchange and not just domination. Yeah. Um, and they are using a European artist's skills that they have co-opted for their functions. It is the opposite of the colonial gaze. He is doing their bidding. They're the clients as well as the subject of art, and that's quite rare. It is rare. I, I, this is why I really love your programmes because I think I think we kind of agree on these on this middle ground, if you like, between the extreme need for art as as the pinnacle achievement of civilization versus the sort of brutalising, power-hungry nature of art. And that there is this, this wonderfully broad range of middling viewpoints where, where actually cultures grow from interaction with one another. So, so you look in particular at the reach of the Dutch, how far they get and what they borrow and what's borrowed from them in turn, don't you? Well, I think the Dutch are a, are a great case because when you imagine that wonderful, exotic world of the Dutch Golden Age. And you think about the objects on the tables of the wealthy Dutch merchants. Those objects are the fruits of having a global empire. Mm. When we think about Holland, if you go to Amsterdam and look at the, the tourist tat in the shops, yeah. you will see the Delft pottery. Well, the Delft pottery is a homegrown Dutch copy of Chinese porcelain. Mm. So the most Dutch thing you can think of, the blue and white... <laughs> China windmill. Yeah, that is that is a reflection of their globalization. It's a, it's a copy of what they called crack Chinese porcelain. Crack is a is a Dutch corruption of the word Caracas, which is the type of ship, the first Portuguese ship that had this porcelain on that was captured by the Dutch, um, was towed back, sailed back to Amsterdam, and they called it crack porcelain because it came off this Caracas. <laughs> So, Not that it's all cracked all no, over. No, 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 that's, it, is, it is now. Well, ironically, the, 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 best, the best evidence we have for it, the most, it's the, that pottery survived better on ships that sank mm. than it did on consignments that were landed, because, of course, all pottery in the end only is only going to go one way. Well, it's the same with gold and silverware from the medieval period. It, it survives in graves or in hoards yeah. that are buried yeah. because it's not melted down yeah. or, or yeah. broken or reused. Dead people are far more careful. They're much more careful. Stuff. They don't lose it. So, yeah. But I, I think that the, this, this is a, a really fascinating series overall because of the different viewpoints that are going to come to the fore. And, and this idea of cultural exchange, I think with, this, with the stories that you're telling, 
You've almost got, you've really got the right pickings, haven't you? Because you can tell these big international stories where it's not a single viewpoint, but it's actually about interaction. It's about interaction and it's also about understanding that art that we often think of as being quintessentially of one culture is very often influenced and shaped by that culture's interaction with other cultures. So to go back to the Dutch Golden Age, when we think about Vermeer, we think about the internal domestic world of the of the Golden Age Dutch home. Well, the Dutch home of the 17th century was full of the evidence and the products of that global exchange. So think of the objects on the tables in Vermeer's paintings, the, the rug from Persia, the Chinese pottery again, the, the globe. Uh, up on the wardrobe, the map on the wall, the beaver skin hat made from North American beaver that beaver fur that came through New Amsterdam that became New York. This is these are global people. Also, I mean the, the example that matters most to me is the art of Nigeria, where my my father's family are from. The Benin bronzes. The Benin bronzes are often seen as the quintessential African art, 16th century brass brass rather than bronze uh, reliefs and and sculptures and figures. Well. A lot of them contain figures of Portuguese merchants who were the traders who traded with Benin in the, in the 15th, 16th century. The brass, well, the bronze itself is imported into, into the kingdom of Benin. So this art is a re- reflects and depicts European traders uh, and is made of a European imported product. And so this the is African. itself is being imported. Well, this is one of the big debates, isn't it? Is it imported or is it a development of a European? I think it's. A, I think it's an indigenous it? technique an indigenous that, that, technique. that develops indigenous in, internally within within West Africa, mm. probably in the 13th century. It moves around from kingdom to kingdom. But you have this art made for Africans by African craftsmen, not actually allowed to be exported because the brass work could not be exported, and it shows depiction of Europeans. My gosh. African art is global art. It is. It is. You know what? It's getting extremely busy it in is. here, David. We are about to do this big launch. We've, t- we've done 25 minutes. Oh, really? Okay. a good long chit-chat. But yeah, we better get on because we're thank on stage. You. And thank, you. thank you. so My much. My pleasure. Art Detective listeners, you are a lucky bunch. Tune in as of the 1st of March for the new Civilization series. Thanks, David. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.